Hello and welcome. You are listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism. Episode on... 4. Episode 4. We made it to the dreaded 4th episode. Yeah, the, the, the big milestone that every podcast has trouble hitting or something. Alright, so I believe you went... F- I, I believe I went first last time, so you go first this time. Absolutely. I will go first. And today I'm going to be talking about Rainforest Cafe. Ah, the uh, I'm sure you have memories of Rainforest Cafe. I think I went there like once. Really? Yeah, yeah. I I remember there was one down at uh, South Coast Plaza for a while, and like I always wanted to go inside. Like I was yeah. so I was like, what is this mystical place? It's but, something. It's so different from every other place in like a mall like South Coast Plaza. It, it so is. Which is like nothing but like high end clothing stores, and then you like pass by Rainforest Cafe, and there's like animatronic animals on the outside and like foliage and giant butterflies and like volcano yeah yeah like rainforest sounds and like people in like safari outfits and all this stuff it's just like what like why is this here well and even even back in like even back in like 2006 or whatever Mm -hmm. before south coast plaza was super nice yeah it was like you know it was between like the mcdonald's and the forever 21 or whatever and it was like it was just it was like it was from an alternate dimension. Yeah. It was so different from everything else. Yeah, like a portal got opened up, and it's like s- spilling out something from a different dimension yeah, like into a mall. It's seriously like a restaurant from an alternate yeah. timeline, <laughs> where that's what dining yeah. is. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, Rainforest Cafe is a themed restaurant chain founded by Stephen Schussler in 1994. Oh, wow, that's really recent. Yeah. Uh, By 1997, the chain consisted of six restaurants all in the United States. The first international location opened in London in June 1997. In 1998, it was planned to build build 12 additional restaurants in the United States, seven in Mexico, and five in the UK for a total of 22 restaurants by 2008, and eventually it reached a peak of 37 restaurants worldwide. Mm. To date, the company owns restaurants in uh, the U.S., Canada, France, uh, England, uh, the UAE and Japan. Uh, Rainforest Cafe focuses on local tourism for a majority of their income, which is something interesting to me because it's like that's not Rainforest Cafe isn't something that's like unique to a specific culture, right? And yet, like apparently, they get most of their money from tourists, like going to London and then eating at the Rainforest Cafe. Cafe. <laughs> How strange! Yeah, that's it, very odd. I would think it would be the opposite, where like people, like locals, go there as like an escape from their like normal dining experience. Right, right. Or maybe it's like ah, uh, we're on a, it's like we're on a trip in a place that's sort of like where we live, and so let's right. do something wacky. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's just interesting to me because they had one, they have I think two at uh, in Disney World, and yeah, yeah. there used to be one in Downtown Disney. Yeah, closed like a year ago. Um, but it's just, like, so... It's always been so interesting to me because it's, like, why is that... Like, why would someone go to, like, Disney World and then eat at the Rainforest Cafe? Right. It seems counterintuitive. Yeah, it's, like, like you're... It's theming that's, like, not Disney and, like, something... It's, like, you're going to a Disney place for, like, a crazy dining experience that's not something Disney-related. It, it Rainforest Cafe is honestly, like... It's honestly, like, you take the Disney formula and then you sort of... You draw the borders around that one restaurant. Right. You know. Exactly. Um, so there's... I'm just going to go into... If anyone has never been to a, a Rainforest Cafe, 
Oh yeah, I barely remember going. If you have, you immediately like I used to go there all the time. I, I think I did a few birthdays there. Right. Uh, I immediately just like get a clear picture in my head. Um, but each rainforest cafe restaurant is designed to depict some features of a tropical rainforest, including plant growth, mist, waterfalls, and figures of rainforest animals, including elephants, gorillas, tigers, jaguars, snakes, crocodiles, frogs, iguanas, butterflies, and tropical birds. Mm. It also includes large fish tanks with live fish. Um, most, yeah, I do remember that. They yeah. had like huge, awesome fish tanks. Yeah, like giant fish tanks that are like connected like on the ceiling and they like yeah, they like yeah, yeah. there's like this big like fish tank archway that you go through to get to your table. Yes, yeah, that was I do remember that. Oh my yeah. god. Uh, it's it's something that's just like so memorable. Like if you went there as a kid, like there's no other restaurant like it. You're triggering like deep sensory, <laughs> like deep sensory experiences that have been like locked in my brain. That's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> uh, the Rainforest Cafe in Disney Springs, uh, uh, Orlando, is located under a large artificial volcano which erupts during the simulated thunderstorms. That's so cool. <laughs> Others, such as uh, the location in Niagara Falls, New York, have the appearance of ancient jungle ruins. Mm. Um, Mall locations usually have waterfalls and simulated plant growth uh, visible to those who pass in the mall. So it's like you're walking through a, just like a normal mall with like the normal like Forever 21, TJ Maxx, Sears, right, whatever. Right. And then all of a sudden you see like giant leaves on right. the wall. It's like, where am I? Like, what is this? Right, right. What a way uh, to make an impression. Honestly. Totally. Um, nearly all locations also have a wishing pond, which has a uh, large animatronic crocodile, uh, where guests are invited to toss coins into the crocodile's mouth. Oh, I, I vaguely remember. It's like that was that was like what was in the lobby while you were waiting for your table. Yeah. was the the big animatronic crocodile. And whenever we were at South Coast Plaza, we would always go and like interact with the crocodile, even if we weren't eating there. It's just like a fun little thing. Did it like talk or something? It just like would growl and like kind of like snap Rawr. at you, and it would, it would like go under the water, and then like it would emerge and like open its mouth, and that's uh, when you try to like throw coins I into see. it. I see. Oh, that's fun. Um, some of the restaurants are partitioned into several rooms by means of rain curtains that fall into basins running along the top of partition walls, rock formations, and curtains of sparse foliage. Uh, most locations have two fish tanks connected uh, over the throughway, throughway from the gift shop to the restaurant. One portion of most locations includes a bar underneath an enormous mushroom, mushroom and the bar is known for their characteristic bar stools made to resemble the legs of animals. Rainforest Cafe also has a set of branded mascots called the Wild Bunch. Ah. These characters include Cha-Cha, the red tree frog. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> Iggy the iguana, Nile the crocodile, Rio a macaw, Maya the jaguar, Tuki the elephant, Bamba the gorilla, and Ozzy the orangutan. Uh, Rainforest-themed merchandise featuring these characters is sold in the gift shop, including stuffed toys, action figures, gifts, and apparel. Also in the gift shop, a talking tree named Tracy Tree entertains, entertains shoppers every few seconds. <laughs> every few seconds. <laughs> Hello again. <laughs> uh, Rainforest Cafe... Uh, serves rainforest-themed food, ranging from seafood, beef, to chicken and pastas and pizzas, e.g. the Cheesecake Factory. Yeah, that's uh, what I was going to say. It's like, that that doesn't sound like rainforest food. <laughs> these these include dishes uh, such as rasta pasta, which includes sautéed chicken, cavapati pasta, uh, walnut pesto, broccoli, red peppers, spinach, garlic, alfredo so sauce, and the sparkling volcano, which is three giant brownies propped up by vanilla ice cream and whipped top topping, drizzled with chocolate and caramel sauce, and three sparkle sparklers placed on side that are lit when they're bring, being brought out to the table. That I do. I remember, like, that's 
my that's like the 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 anchor memory for yeah. my experience was I went to some kid's birthday in like in like elementary school or something, but he got that giant ass brownie volcano, <laughs> and they, the waiters would always yell volcano no! as they were bringing it out. That was a, another like very memorable thing. Did it know. have like a pump or something inside it that made the like fudge yeah, come out yeah, or yeah. something? It, it was it was just like the most extravagant. It was so dessert. fucking over the top, <laughs> but it blew my tiny mind. <laughs> in addition to all this, every seventeen minutes. A thunderstorm occurs in Rainforest Cafe. Lights flicker Drenching on and off. All of the <laughs> yeah. uh, Several drownings. <laughs> yeah, they have a, a quota of drownings per day. <laughs> Acceptable losses. Lights flicker on and off to mimic lightning. The animatronic gorillas beat their chests wildly. The sounds of elephants trumpet, trumpeting echo around the restaurant. Uh, and uh, rain like falls down in like specific like rain partitions. Right, right. With the the basins you mentioned earlier. So basically, this is the absolute epitome of just like, dining extravagance. Right. Like you, there's no other comparison to just the absolute just insane production value of going to eat at a rainforest cafe. Right. There was that whole boom of like themed restaurants during the '90s or Absolutely. anything, but. Like, you know, I've been to the Hard Rock Cafe and, like, all mm-hmm. those all those other weird ones. Like, you've got the remnants of it now with shit like Red Robin. Right. But Rainforest Cafe was, like, head and shoulders above everyone. Exactly. Like, just this undisputed king of themed restaurant dining. Because of all this production value, they, they went balls to the wall. Exactly. It's not, like, light theming, like... Red Robin or, or Rubies or something. Right. This is like full theming. Like you're in the rainforest. We're going to make it believable. Right. Right. Like yeah. you feel like you're in another world when you're in there because there's no windows. There's no way to look outside. It's just you're in this space and it's totally different and everything is just self-contained and it's it's just right. it's like crazy. It's like medieval times level theming, exactly. honestly. Yeah. It's very similar to that. Um, and it, it boomed like right during that like 90s explosion of themed restaurants and all. Right, right. That's when like Disneyland was doing all sorts of crazy things like Disney Quest, like the Disney yeah, arcades yeah, yeah. and all these ins- like, just like pouring so much money into these like physical like attractions and places which I feel like you see less and less of now because everything's on the internet right. and people go to their don't go to like actual locations for their entertainment. Well it's like if you do it's got to be good. Right. It's got to right. be something like Disneyland or Universal Studios Right, or right. You got to make sure that you're getting you're getting money for the you're getting entertainment for the money you spent totally. right um, the original location was located in Minnesota's Mall of America um, but the first oh, concept of Rainforest Cafe was actually designed inside founder Stephen Shustler's Minneapolis home he designed an actual Rainforest Cafe inside his house that's like Wow, like that's like Walt Disney level like imagination and dedication. Right, it's like that. I, oh, wow, that's awesome because it's like that shows that it's not like a cynical corporate thing. Like ah yes, it's like we can design this on a spreadsheet and make money. It's like right. this dude was truly committed totally. to this experience. Like he wanted this. So yeah, exactly. So basically, he was um, an advertising executive who just quit his job one day, sold pretty much everything he owned, and then just decided to go all in to this idea for a restaurant. So he designed this whole thing, basically everything that a modern rainforest cafe has inside his own home, basically 
to take investors in to like a mock dining experience to get someone to back this project. What a maverick. I love this guy. Uh, So it was described as artificial waterfalls tumbling down custom-made rock formations, animatronic crocodiles bobbing their heads, and speakers piping in the roar of a tropical thunderstorm. Uh, Schussler used uh, over 3,700 extension cords to power the 20 different sound systems, lights, and fog pumps just inside his own home. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so cool. Like, he literally made, like, the place where he lived, he converted it into a pitch for Rainforest Cafe. Right. It's like, it truly is his life. Right. Like, there's nowhere else for him to go. You can't do that with any other, like, business venture, no. can you? It's like, you can't do that with, like, a spaghetti factory, no. you know? Exactly. Because it wouldn't make sense. Right. But I feel like the only way to really pitch this restaurant is to just build it. Yeah. Like he knew what he wanted, and he's like, there, I can't just describe this. I have to show people what I'm aiming for. Right, right, yeah. Um, and the original concept also featured live animals, which is something oh. Rainforest Cafe doesn't have anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, they used to They used to have, like, a guy that would, like, have, like, a gecko or something for yeah. parties. And he'd, like, he'd like, here's the iguana, look right. at it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's something I'd totally forgotten about until I started doing research for uh, this this podcast. So in his home, he had 40 tropical birds, two 150-pound tortoises, a baboon, an iguana, and a bevy of tropical fish. He had a fucking baboon in his house? <laughs> yeah. What? He brought in all these animals just for this pitch, so it's getting even crazier. Where did he get a baboon? I don't know. I guess, I guess the like restrictions are more lax in Minnesota I or whatever. I guess. You could just buy a baboon I back in like the you 90s. I couldn't do that in California. No, there's no, like... Oh. I mean, probably not even in Minnesota nowadays. It's like, where do you get a baboon yeah. anywhere? Like, Yeah, it convince a zoo, but like, I feel like there's like that's there's got to be some sort of law that says you can't just have a baboon in no, your house. No, there's no way you can just have a baboon. Yeah. There's, there, there is no legit way to purchase a baboon yeah. in the United States. In addition, um, he, and he ha- did this. For, he did this for a business pitch. Yeah, like pro bono too. Like he's just doing it with his own money, just for like a pa- like a passion project. What did, what did he do with the baboon when he wasn't yeah. like? I don't know. That sounds terrifying. Like to me. like I, I can see the tortoise. Like you can yeah, have yeah. you can have like a, even a big tortoise. Right. There's like, a guy I know in, people who have tortoises. Right. Right. And like macaws and stuff. It's like those totally. are it's exotic pets. But like you can purchase them in a reputable way. But right. you, like a fucking baboon yeah. though. You can't. There's what gotta be the some hell? sort of shady deal. In addition, he had a greenhouse laboratory he installed himself on his roof, which not only housed a full bar and tables, but also real butterflies bred to, quote, determine how long they would survive and whether they would fall in the food. That That's like an insane level of detail. Yeah. And like, <laughs> He's like breeding these butterflies himself. Right. The dude learned, the dude learned like etymology, like, right. like entomology. Yeah. And... At a greenhouse laboratory. The dude, right. the dude learned botany and imported exotic plants just yeah. so that he could make this theme restaurant. Right, and he was... Basically, the concept was to have all these, like, exotic butterflies flying around the restaurant. That's but so cool! I guess he decided that it was just, like, not practical, because I don't think that ever went into, like, the first restaurant. Right, no, it's like you don't want butterflies landing on your food yeah. or whatever. <laughs> But it's just the fact that he like tried it out to see if it w- would work is so like visionary. The fact the fact that he like researched butterfly husbandry, yeah, purchased butterflies, right. constructed a laboratory on his roof, 
and never once thought like maybe I shouldn't do this. Yeah. Like no, this this dude knows what he's doing and still had the sense to be like, okay, it's not working out. I've tested it out for a couple of months. We're right. not going to put That's it into the first concept. Right, right. So he was not like a lunatic who's just throwing like he had like a plan. He was a reasonable person. Right. This is a guy. This is a guy who has the drive to see his dreams through. Uh, unfortunately, he failed to alert his neighbors. <laughs> as to what he's he was doing, so his neighbors, uh, there was a, a wide range of theories of like what he was doing in his house, what? which included people suspecting he was running a devil worshiping temple <laughs> or a some sort of insane brothel. Um, his local power company suspected that he was growing marijuana, leading to the DEA showing up at his doorstep, and he just unleashes the baboon on them. Or something. <laughs> I, I it's. I like I like how all of those theories are less weird than what he was yes. actually doing. He was he was trying to make like a reputable like like sustainable business model. That's what he was doing. Well, no, it's like it's like yeah, I'm here. We hear all these like screeching noises <laughs> and like animal sounds yeah. and like thun like the sounds of thunder. Yeah. And he invents he invites over these like men in suits all the time yeah. and they leave looking very pleased yeah. and it's like he's got to be running some sort of satanic monkey sex brothel yeah. it's like so what are you doing right. man it's like oh i'm running a jungle themed restaurant yeah. and this is the concept I, I built a concept for the jungle themed restaurant in my home with a real baboon yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy but like so admirable at the same time right right um, Schussler writes in his memoir, it's a jungle out there, that overall, <laughs> overall it took me three years and almost $400,000 to get the house developed to the point where I felt comfortable showing it to potential investors. Well, that's so it? He, yeah, like, I guess, like, adjusted for inflation, it's even more, but, like, right, yeah. the crazy thing about that is he didn't invite anyone in for three years. <laughs> he was just building it, just, like, waiting for it to be ready. I wonder if he, like, consulted with people or if it was all him. Yeah. Like, he was just locked inside. I don't know. Like, I didn't find any research on that. That's, I, that's also very interesting. I um, want to read this guy's biography yeah. or something. Like, this is fascinating. Yeah, I hope it's still, like, sold somewhere. Um, he said, I figured it would be like the field of dreams. If I built it, people would come, he said to Orange Coast Magazine. But it certainly was not an overnight success. Um, investors couldn't see the forest for the trees. They weren't <laughs> visionaries. Uh, basically, um, at first, investors were mostly just confused. Like, this right. is too expensive. This will never work. I don't get how you're going to maintain this. Right. Um, however... As Schessler teetered on basically financial ruin from all the money that he poured into this concept, a gambling magnate named Lyle Berman, made rich by founding Minneapolis's Grand, Cas Grand Casinos, came by Schessler's homemade jungle. After a few visits and meetings, the idea grew on him and he took a chance on the concept, investing $1.2 million and becoming Rainforest Cafe's first chairman and CEO. So eventually he found someone who's like, I believe, like, I get what you're trying to do. Like, it's, I believe in it. It's hard to put that much money and attention into something and not have some random venture capitalist totally. come by and throw yeah. money at it. Just for, like, the, the potential. Like, this is crazy enough that it might be a huge right, success. Right, right, right. Because something like this is not going to come around again. Exactly. It could be a flop, but, like, these guys have so much money. They, they can a few, oh, afford oh, yeah. a few, like, misses. Um, luckily for Schessler and Berman, their home state already had a perfect place to open a rainforest-themed restaurant experience, live animals and all. Uh, that was the Mall of America. 
uh, in Minnesota, which had launched just a few years earlier in 1992 and had become the largest shopping mall in the United States. So a perfect place for like this crazy restaurant concept. Right, right. Uh, the Rainforest Cafe would open its doors on February 3rd, 1994, and within a week, the wait for a table was over three hours. Wow. Which wow. is immediate success once it opened. Right. Well, it's like imagine being the first people to go into the Rainforest yeah. Cafe, and then imagine getting to tell your friends about it. Like, right. you will never believe the right. shit that I just saw. Exactly. It, especially in a place like Minnesota, where they don't have, like, Disneyland, they don't have Disney right, World. Right, yeah. This is, like, the equivalent of, like, a theme park experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the theming was very heavy. Um, it featured uh, uh, safari guides, which were the waiters, tour guides, hosts, uh, pathfinders, retail sales associates, navigators, bartenders, and safari assistants, bussers. Um, but they also needed animal handlers to take care of all the live right, animals, right. which were in the initial concept. And facility operators to maintain all the animatronic animals. Right. So both live animals and animatronic animals required two set completely separate staffs. Right. Right. Um, Rick Peters, the director of operations for San Francisco's 3,300 square foot Rainforest Cafe, told uh, San Francisco Gate in 2000 that there was an entire control room set up just to monitor the computers necessary to keep all the action in motion. Oh, I bet. So it's just like so much technology is going into this. Uh, in the next few years, quite a few rainforest cafes uh, popped up all across the United States. In 1996, a new cafe opened at the Walt Disney World Resort, um, and a second opened up at uh, the Animal Kingdom in Epcot Center in 1998. Mm. By 1999, each location was making over $8 million a year. Holy shit. Which was the most revenue per restaurant of any restaurant chain in the United States. That, yeah, that's so, incredibly impressive. success. Oh my god! I did. I did not know they were that successful. Right, especially in like the late nineties. Like that's right. like that was their absolute peak. Uh, in two thousand, uh, the Rainforest Cafe was sold to Landry's Restaurant Inc., uh, a company that also owns over five hundred restaurant, hotel, and casino and entertainment destinations. And this, uh, I didn't find a ton of research on like the eventual slow decline of Rainforest Cafe, but it seems like from what I can gather that the sale of Rainforest Cafe from private owners who truly believed in the concept to this big restaurant management right. company kind of started the slow, like very gradual but slow decline yeah. of, of the chain. So they were more focused on just like fit, how do they fit Rainforest Cafe into their portfolio of restaurants right, right. rather than, you know, the absolute just insane passion Right. Uh, for Just the, idea. the the sheer attention that would be required to keep something this complex running totally is like it would be hard to do that if from the perspective of one of these large investment firms exactly. Um, so after the sale to Landry's Entertainment, things started to change. Uh, menu items changed, uh, decor changed slightly. Things were scaled back. Um, in addition, many of the live animals were removed. Yeah, it, um, that makes sense. Yeah, which makes sense. Um, which, because the live birds alone cost each location over $100,000 a year. Easily, yeah. Just for the animal handlers, the you know, like right. all the cost to maintain animals. Right. Um, keep them fed, keep them housed. Um, so basically, Shustler believes that his original vision was compromised after after the, share, the sale to Landry's. Um, 
He said, of course, I didn't agree with Landry's decision to remove the live animals. I felt that the marketing value of the live animals alone justified their cost, but I was overruled after the sale. Mm. Uh, which is it's just interesting because it's like, yes, those things cost a lot of money, but um, that's like what brought a lot of people to the restaurant yeah. at first. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I, it was absolutely the place to go if you were like a kid who was into animals. You yeah. Know? Totally. Exactly. It's like, what other restaurant can you go? And there's like right. live animals being right. there's presented like a, a to you. Goddamn iguana or yeah. something. It's like the perfect place for a, a birthday party for a kid. Easily, yeah. Um, another Rainforest Cafe executive said after the sale, to me, it's dead. It's no longer Rainforest Cafe the way, the way Steve saw it. Landry's is great oh, as sad. far as their restaurant management and streamlining, but when they approached Rainforest Cafe with their animal element, they absolutely obliterated it in a very bad way. Mm. The animals were really what set Rainforest Cafe apart from being just a theme restaurant. So, like, basically, he, he summarizes everything in that quote. It's like, yes, like, Landry's figured out a way to, like, streamline it um, and fit it into, like, a larger portfolio and probably... May, like try to increase profits, right. but just like the fun and the true joy behind it was taken away. Well, the very the very thing that made it successful was the fact that it wasn't streamlined. Like mm-hmm. it, the fact that it didn't fit into an existing like archetype. Exactly. That's why like, it was successful. It's how can you fit Rainforest Cafe into like a portfolio? Right. It's so different. It's like it's its own thing. You can't just like put it alongside like oh Ruby Tuesdays, Polly's Pies, like right. whatever, and then Rainforest Rainforest Live Cafe. iguanas. Yeah, exactly. So they're like, let's just make it a regular restaurant um, with just the theming, but not the animals. Right. Um, it, it it did seem since the sale that it started to decline, and it definitely seems like it's going to be on the way down. Um, from a peak of 37 restaurants um, in uh, across the globe, it only has uh, 22 restaurants now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only one location left in California. The one at Rainfort or the one at Downtown Disney closed. Right. Uh, the one yeah. at South Coast Plaza closed. And like to in such like premium locations, them closing down their locations, I feel like that's just a sign where it's it's right. not doing so well. Like they would be. If they were, like, doing well, they would be expanding. Right. It's hard. Well, and it's hard to... Because it seems like the one one of the things that really made Rainforest Cafe was the, the foot traffic. Yeah. And those are, like, the two highest foot traffic areas in California, totally. pretty much. And the fact that they're not profitable enough to stay open there is not a great sign. Right. Ugh. Um, and it does... Uh, if you go to the Rainforest Cafe website... It looks pretty outdated. Um, I bet, yeah. uh, immediately after you open the website, a pop-up comes up of a, the autobiography of the founder of Landry's management. So it's like I feel like if the restaurant were doing well, it would like they wouldn't you wouldn't get a pop-up for yeah like some weird like just like the owner's probably like whatever it promote my autobiography on there like no one right. goes to the website anyway right um so that's just like it's kind of sad yeah that's it's very like, sad at the same time I feel like. It, it was kind of inevitable uh, just to wrap up I feel like as we talked about like it came in this like big boom of just like crazy themed restaurants in the 90s but now like with the rise of the internet and everyone just like being able to get whatever entertainment experience they want online there's no longer that much of a need to go out and go to a physical location yeah. which is really sad 
Um, I think even attendance to like Disneyland has like gone down slightly. Oh, like yeah. Disneyland is Easily. still still like obviously doing better than Rainforest Cafe is because of all the like you know all the different like things they have in their portfolio, all the intellectual property. But like because Rainforest Cafe is so expensive to run. It doesn't really have recognizable intellectual property like the characters like Cha Cha the Tree Frog. Right, right. You can't like sell merchandise for it anywhere other than like a Rainforest Cafe gift shop. Right, right. At Disney, you can sell merchandise everywhere. Anywhere, yeah. People know Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, but Rainforest Cafe, you literally, to make money, people have to be in the door. And if people aren't coming in the door, then. It's gonna, they're going to lose all their the revenue. Whole, the entire experience was predicated on how much like money and attention was put into the experience, exactly. right? Like the moment, the moment they took their foot off the gas pedal. Yeah. Like you can't if you're going to run something like the Rainforest Cafe, you can't do anything but floor it. Exactly. In terms Just of like, like what Steve production Shuffler value. Did yeah. In his home, he spared no expense. He knew he would have to put as much money as possible to make this like appealing to investors. And that's what he did. Like that's how he was able to sell the idea. But it's like the moment that you scale that back slightly, people are it's going to be like I can just go to Disneyland or like stay home and watch a show on Netflix right. or something. Right. It, it just becomes another it just becomes another expensive theme restaurant. Exactly. And that's boring. Yeah. No one wants that. Right. And it's not like the food is that great or there it's it's No, you don't go expensive. for the food. Yeah. You go for the theming and when the theme, like when you've been a few times it starts to become less magical. Um, and I know my family went so often we'd at least go two or three times a year and it's like it's not that exciting. Right. going like three times in a year it's like okay i get it and it's like the food's not great it's super expensive so slowly like families after they've been enough they just like stop going or at least going far less frequently right right and that's the story of the rainforest cafe ah uh, amazing maybe, maybe they'll make it come back but it seems like yeah it's slowly yeah. winding down all right my turn wonderful so today i will be talking about the radio shack oh boy so, a premiere. The story of Radio Shack is similar to that of many of the other companies that we've covered on this show. Mm-hmm. A tale of humble beginnings, landmark success, seeming invincibility, hubris, and decline. <laughs> Blockbuster. Where Sears' decline was slow and private, a titanic streamliner grinding its hull against a glacier, bleeding assets slowly from a small but fatal wound... Radio Shack was fast and public. It was an out-of-control steam locomotive, a one-ring circus of desperate financial decisions and public embarrassments, <laughs> where Sears made safe, conservative decisions in a world that was slowly moving on. Radio Shack reacted out of panic to any change in the wind and consistently made the wrong decision. Oh, boy. Oh, Buckle this up. it gets so good. <laughs> I, I hit... I basically hit gold with this. This is so great. The beginning. The company was started as Radio Shack in 1921 by two brothers, Theodore and Milton Deutschmann, who wanted to provide equipment for the then-nascent field of amateur, or ham, radio operators. The brothers opened a one-store retail and mail-order operation in the heart of downtown Boston at 46 Braille Street. They chose the name Radio Shack, which was the term for a small wooden structure that housed a ship's radio equipment. The Deutschmans thought that the name was appropriate for the store and would supply the needs of radio officers aboard ships, as well as the hams, radio operators. Uh, The term was already in use, and to this day, by hams when referring to the location or their stations. Mm -hmm. Right. It 
comes from like ham-fisted, like jerry-rigged. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. The company issued its first catalog in 1939 as it entered the high-fidelity music market. Mm. In 1954, Radio Shack began selling its own private label products under the brand name Realist, changing uh, changing the brand name to Realistic after being sued by Studio Realist. <laughs> Uh, after expanding to nine stores plus an extensive mail order business, the company fell on hard times in the 1960s. Radio Shack was essentially bankrupt, but a, uh, a venture capitalist named Charles D. Tandy saw the potential of the Radio Shack and retail customer elect- retail consumer electronics, purchasing the company for three hundred thousand dollars. What year was that? That was uh, basically like 1961. Okay. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. So they did great for like 40 years. Wow. Like. They were they were good for a while. Mm-hmm. They were purchased by the oh they were purchased by the Tandy Company the Tandy Leather Company in 1962, forming the Tandy Radio Shack and Leather. Like that's what it was for about ten years. It yeah, was that's the, so strange. Yeah, that's a like, weird combination. Right, it was like ham radio parts and leather goods. <laughs> <laughs> One stop shop. It was sort of a it was sort of like a hobbyist type thing. Mm. It was like you come here for all of your like small craft stuff. Right, it appealed to a certain kind of consumer. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Radio Shack was nearly bankrupt at the time, so Tandy got a great deal on Radio Shack. Mm-hmm. Like, purchased it for next to nothing. Tandy's strategy was to appeal to hobbyists. It created small stores staffed by people who knew electronics and sold many private brands. Tandy closed Radio Shack's unprofitable mail-order business, ended credit purchases, and eliminated many top management positions, but keep but kept the salespeople, merchandisers, and advertisers, which is critical. Smart. The number of items carried was cut from 40,000 to 2,500. Wow. As Tandy sought to identify the 20% that represents 80% of the sales. Of the sales. Seems like what most successful businesses do is like they figure out what's profitable and they eliminate everything else. Well, and that's that's basically why Radio Shack was unprofitable at the time was mm. because their their inventory was way too broad. Right. Like they they did have that core sort of a thousand products or so mm-hmm. that kept them afloat, but they were they were trying so many different things that it was just sapping money. Right. And replaced Radio Shack with a handful of stores of blah 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 blah. So sought to identify the 20% that represents the 80% of sales and replace Radio Shack's handful of large stores with many little holes in the wall, Mm -hmm. a large number of rented locations which were easier to close and reopen elsewhere if a location didn't work out. And that's something we're going to see with Radio Shack for the rest of its history, is location is key. Like, because when you're selling such a specialty product, people have to know where to go for it. Right. As an incentive for them to work long hours and remain profitable, store managers were required to take an ownership in the stake of their stores, right? Basically a mm-hmm. stock buy-in. In markets too small to support a company-owned Radio Shack store, the chain relied on independent dealers who carried the products as a sideline, right? Mm-hmm. Which, so they had this stock buy-in option for the people who owned and managed the stores, which yeah. is smart because it's like you don't want you don't want somebody, you don't want the manager to not care. Yeah, for sure. Forcing them to have a literal stake in the yeah. business. So they were actually doing they were doing pretty well during this until Charles D. Tandy died of a heart attack in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1982, the breakup of the Bell Corporation, now AT and T, dropped dropped phone prices across the country. Right. And so because of this, it encouraged many Americans to purchase home phones. And Radio Shack offered 20 different models for home phones. Wow. 
the Tandy Corporation owned most of their factories and produced their own brand name phones. By 1990, they were the largest PC manufacturer in the world. Jeez, yeah. Think about that. Like, it is, it's 1990, like, PCs are just now becoming a thing. Right. And they own the largest computer component manufacturing network in the world. Right, like right before the huge boom right of before the, they could not be in a better position. Yeah, so they owned uh, OEM Manufacturing, uh, which built hardware for Digital Equipment Corporation, Grid, uh, Olivetti, AST Computer, Panasonic, and many many others. The company manufactured everything from store fixtures to computer software to wires and cables, TV antenna, TV antennas, audio, video, audios and videotapes. Uh, which made Radio Shack the world's largest electronics chain. Wow. Like, they were the world's, not only the world's largest manufacturer of computer components, but the world's largest computer component and computer product retailer. Right. Right before the PC boom. (laughs) Yep. In 1970, so this is a, a little couple years earlier, mm-hmm. the Tandy Corporation bought the Allied Radio Corporation, both retail and industrial divisions, merging the brands into the Allied Radio Shack and closing duplicate locations. However, three years later in 1973, after a federal government review, the company sold off the few remaining Allied retail stores and uh, resumed the Radio Shack name. Allied Electronics, the firm's industrial component operation, continued as the Tandy division until it was sold to Spartan Manufacturing in 1981. Basically, that meant... So they they bought one of their major competitors, mm-hmm. but then uh, but then got broken up by Trustbusters. Mm. And so what they did was they basically just bought... Like, they bought their major competitor and then had to immediate, had to immediately lose all of it. So... In June of 1991, Tandy closed... Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So, largest largest computer component manufacturer in the world and largest computer retailer in the world. In June of 1991, Tandy closed or restructured its 200 Radio Shack computer centers, acquired Computer City, and attempted to shift its emphasis away from components and cables towards mainstream consumer electronics. Tandy sold its computer manufacturing to AST Research oh, in no. 1993, including the Laptop Computer Grid Systems Corporation, which it had purchased in 1988. It sold the Memorex com- Consumer Recording Trademarks no, to a Hong it. Kong firm and divested most of its manufacturing no. divisions, House Brand Products, which Radio <laughs> House Brand Products, which Radio Shack had long marked up heavily, literally, which. Okay, so they would have the Radio Shack brand things in their stores. They were like literally the same guts as the as their competitors' products that they were also selling, but literally just twice the price. Right. But it didn't matter because they were selling like they owned the manufacturers. Yeah. So even if they sold their competitors' products, they were still making money on the back end. Yeah. And so they got rid of their their house brands and replaced them with third-party brands that were already readily available from competitors that were so to reduce profit margins. Mm. Um, after selling all of their manufacturing businesses. So it's like what why would you do that? <laughs> it's like, "Oh, we need to we need to streamline our business." It's like, "But you're giving up all of the things that make you like a vertical monopoly." Right. Monopoly. Monopoly. Right. Yeah, it's like they're perfectly poised to dominate the market and they just like give it up. 
It's just like right. It's like oh, we need to be slimmer. It's like no, yeah, don't. not right now. No, no. It's it is people. People nowadays don't like people our age don't, and even people back then did not realize like what a perfect position Radio Shack was. Yeah. Like if they had kept their market space, they could have. They easily could be toe to toe with the likes of Apple and Amazon. Oh today. yeah, absolutely. Easily. Yeah. So, welcome to 1995. (laughs) The mid-1990s, the company attempted to move out of small components and into more mainstream consumer products, uh, focusing on marketing wireless phones. This placed the chain long accustomed to to charging wide margins on specialized products not readily available from other local retailers into direct competition against vendors such as Best Buy and Walmart. So... They took their main market niche, like the thing that literally made them unique and profitable, yeah. got rid of that, <laughs> and then tried to compete with Best Buy and Walmart. <sighs> house brands, real the house brands, Realistic and Optimus, were discontinued. In 1999, the company agreed to carry RCA products in a five-year agreement for an RCA Digital Entertainment Center, a sort of store within a store. Uh, when the RCA contract ended, Radio Shack introduced its own Presidian and Acurian brands, reviving the Optimus brand in 2005 for some low-end products. Enercell, a house brand for dry cell batteries, remained in use until approximately 2014. Basically what this meant is that in an effort to like in an effort to get people in the store, they basically provided free rent and labor to RCA for five years. Which is idiotic. Yeah, it's never it's a good utterly idea. utterly idiotic. <laughs> Why would you do this right uh, All right. Uh, this section is... I titled it A Glimmer of Hope. In mid-December of 2008, Radio Shack opened three concept stores under the name of Point Mobile to sell uh, wireless phones and service, like netbook, netbooks, iPod, GPS navigation devices, like a sort of... like... sort of like a proto-Apple store. Honestly, right. if Apple sold many different brands, but it was very much this sort of like hip, cutting edge technology market thing. Yeah. Uh, so they were furnished with white fixtures like those in the remodeled wireless departments of individual Radio Shack stores, but there were no communi- but there was no communicated relationship to Radio Shack. Mm. Like so the concept stores people didn't realize that it was Radio Shack running them. Right. Um had the test proved successful, Radio Shack could have moved in could have moved to convert existing Radio Shack locations into Point Mobile stores, which would have been more successful, but, like, the market just wasn't ready for it yet. Right. Like, it, and it wasn't what people wanted, really. Yeah. It's like, if they had kept... If they had kept the Radio Shack brand, mm-hmm. it probably would have been successful. Yeah. While some Point Mobile products, such as car power adapters and phone cases, were, and still are, carried as store brand products in Radio Shack stores, the standalone Point Mobile stores were closed and abandoned in March of 2011. Mm-hmm. So, it's time for the uh, the bread and butter of this show. Some uh, good old-fashioned, desperate corporate floundering. <laughs> so, this is, this, is a quote for, this is on the official Wikipedia. <laughs> In August of 2009, Radio Shack desperately rebranded itself <laughs> as The Shack. Oh, no. <laughs> the campaign, We're The Shack now. <laughs> the campaign increased sales of mobile products at the expense of its core components, of its core business components. <laughs> right? Why? So they, they stopped selling all of the like computer parts 
completely and it's like we're just phones now welcome to the shack (laughs) (laughs) we don't allow the word radio here this was this move was like mercilessly mocked by every major business outlet even wikipedia says the word desperately (laughs) oh yeah no it's like it's not challenged by the moderators it's like no this is this is like explicitly the definition of desperate (laughs) because it was it was absolutely desperate they were trying to be new and hip and lame and it sucked pop into the shack for some phone stuff or whatevs yo (laughs) right it's like trying to rebrand this like basically like brick and mortar hobbyist store as like cool and hip yeah hang out with your friends at the shack uh, soda fountains it's like this happened back in 2009 and I'm still cringing about it (laughs) So, Intertan, a former Tandy subsidiary, sold the the Tandy stores, the Tandy UK stores in 1999, and the Australian stores in 2001. Intertan was sold with its Canadian stores to uh, major competitor Circuit City in 2004. The Radio Shack brand remained in use in the United States, but the 21st century provided a period of long decline for the chain, which was slow to respond to key trends such as e-commerce, the entry of competitors like Best Buy and Amazon, and the growth of the maker movement. Now, so they were selling off all of their UK and Australian and Canadian stores. Mm-hmm. This is before they were in financial trouble. They like they were just they were just doing this because it's like ah oh, we don't need these foreign business holders yeah. like they were it was under the guise of like slimming down right it was we don't need these extra ways to make money it it was they they thought that the future was this they thought that the future was like a very contained like local thing like oh right. we're not going to have a massive network of information technology that allows us to operate an enormous spider web of businesses yeah. all over the world right. that clearly won't happen yeah uh, it's <laughs> like I, it's it's like I said they're they are they are looking at the market and they are consistently reacting wrong. Yeah, right. Yeah, you think they get one right every once in a while? No, they are, no. they consistently make the wrong decision. Yeah. By 2011, smartphone sales, rather than general electronics, accounted for half the chain's revenue. People have like you got a flagship prob like a flag flagship product. But it's like 20% of your sales. Yeah. 50% is like dangerous reliance. Yeah. Traditional Radio Shack's clientele of do-it-yourself tinkerers were increasingly sidelined. Like, I mean, and that's that's like asking for... That's like asking for death in, right. if you're a business. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hmm, let's continue to sideline our core demographic. <laughs> <laughs> Electronic parts formerly stocked in stores were now mostly only available through its online special order program. Store employees concentrated efforts on selling profitable mobile contracts while other customers seeking assistance were neglected and left (laughs) the stores in frustration. Right? So, like, they basically started hiring smartphone sales people. Yeah. Right? Who didn't know anything about hobbyist electronics. Right. Just trying to sell these contracts. Right. And so people would show up to the store like, hey, I want to repair my radio or something. Mm-hmm. And the store people wouldn't know anything about right. it. Like, they wouldn't be able to help you. It's like, Here, you want to sign up for this two-year contract? It's like, no, no. my radio's broken. What? And so they were, they were essentially forced to then go home and then purchase, like, do internet research. Right. And then purchase whatever they needed over the internet and from a competitor. And then never go to Radio Shack And then again. never go to Radio Shack again. Demand for consumer electronics was also being increasingly weakened by consumers buying items online. Hmm. 
So, um, <laughs> this, this is where it really gets good. So, Sirica 2004, the Fix 1500 initiative. Oh, no. In early 2004, Radio Shack introduced Fix 1500, a sweeping internal program to correct inventory and profitability issues company-wide. The program put the 1500 lowest-graded store managers of over 5,000 on notice of the need to improve. So, like, they, they put you on probation, pretty much. It's if you great were, for morale. Yeah. <laughs> just you wait. <laughs> Managers were graded not on tangible store and personnel data, but on one-on-one interviews with district managers. Oh, no. So your actual your actual performance did not matter. Right. It's it was, how well you did in these interviews. Like, how, how charming you were. It was literally, like, if the district manager liked you or not. <laughs> that was it. And... And so what that means in reality is you ha- if you get put on probation, you have no way to improve. Like right. you could you could double your sales. Yeah. You could double your sales and become the most profitable location in the country, but if the district manager didn't like you, they just fired you. Yeah, and then there's no incentive to do better at your job. No, there's literally no incentive to right. do better. Like it basically all this did was it would randomly fire 20% of their <laughs> workforce yeah. every couple months. Right. Like and not just not just like their workforce, but like it would regularly fire a random twenty percent chunk. Yeah. So like and it would affect their most experienced managers and salespeople. Right. This was this was in my opinion like like all of this stuff. Like a lot of the times we see things where it's like slow decline, slow decline, slow decline. But it's yeah. like if you switched it up in just the right way, you can come back right. because of. Just because of the sheer amount of assets that Radio Shack had. Yeah. But to me, this is the death blow. Like, this right. is where they really shot themselves in the foot and started truly bleeding out. Right. Like, they, they really couldn't come back from this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, they did this. So, they did these firing periods every 90 days. <laughs> they would fire 20% of their workforce every 90 days. So that's like almost guaranteed that you're going to get fired, and there's no incentive to do well at your job anyway. Garen. So basically, just do whatever you want. Just like play like a baseball oh. in the middle of the store or something. Who cares? You, there's the, oh my god. There's some things later that we'll we'll talk about <laughs> <Okay>. from like. <laughs> so typically, a 90-day period was given for the manager to improve, thus causing another manager to then be selected for the fix 1500. <laughs> Uh, a total of 1,734 store managers were reassigned as sales associates or terminated in a six-month in a six-month period. Gosh. This happened so every 90 days. This happened three times. Uh, so it you've like des like decimated is literally an understatement. Right. It was like because that implies that it was only one in ten. This was yeah. literally this was. This was six out of ten. Right. They they gutted their sales force. Yeah. Utterly gutted it. So also during this period, Radio Shack canceled the employee stock purchase plan, and we'll we'll realize why they did that later. Okay. In in two thousand and four, Radio Shack was the target of a class action lawsuit in which more than three thousand current Jeez. or former Radio Shack managers alleged that the company required them to work long hours without overtime pay. In an attempt to suppress the news, the company launched a successful strategic lawsuit against the 
public participation against Bradley D. Jones, the webmaster of RadioShackSucks.com, <laughs> a former Radio Shack dealer for 17 years. 17 years! 17, yeah, they That's fi- a huge chunk of your working life, and now he's like basically devoting his life to taking them down. Yeah. And they, they, they launched a successful class action lawsuit Jeez. against this. So they lost they lost the class action lawsuit against them, mm-hmm. but public but they their public opinion was in their favor. Right? right. So they were able to recover from it. Didn't really do them any damage. And during this time, conditions at Radio Shack were beyond abysmal. Jeez. Like the story the stories from like the stories from Radio Shack employees during this time are like they liter they literally rival like eighteen fifty like eighteen fifties coal miner stories. Oh it's 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 hilarious and terrifying. Yeah. Um there's there is a fantastic article that I read uh-huh. about this that I, I wanna quote later called An Elegy for Radio Shack. Um that has a bunch of employee testimonials, and they're they're amazing wow. and hilarious, and you absolutely need to read them. Yeah. So, 2006, they've got some additional management issues. In 2005, a switch in featured wireless providers, basically switching from like AT and T to Sprint, mm-hmm. pretty much. It wasn't Sprint though, caused a 62 percent drop in fourth quarter earnings because of an inventory write down, sending the company's shares to a three year low. Jeez. A 62 percent drop in earnings is like that's a death sentence for right. any company, especially fourth quarter, because fourth quarter is usually the saving grace for most of these retail stores, because that's when Christmas and Black Friday is, mm-hmm. and the fact that they're actually decreasing that much in Q4 is insane. And that's that's one of the other that's one of the other things about this is that they the Radio Shack management refused to let go. <laughs> they they just kept fucking digging. Yeah, and it was. Like and the entire rest of the business world is watching this and like licking their lips <laughs> and like sharpening steak knives because <laughs> they just kept digging. On February twentieth, two thousand and six, CEO David Edmondson admitted to misstatements on his curriculum vitae, which and reassigned and was reassigned after the uh, the Fort Worth Star Telegram debunked his claim to degrees in theology and psychology from Heartland's Baptist Bible College, <laughs> like. That he got taken down by this totally unrelated scandal, yeah. <laughs> right? Unrelated to the terrible job he was doing at <laughs> right. running Radio Shack. But I love that he lied. Like he got taken down for lying about having a degree in theology and psychology <laughs> from Heartland Baptist Bible yeah. College, <laughs> right. as if anyone would care. As if it's like Harvard or something. <laughs> what? Like if if I dug into this story a little bit, and I don't want to like sidetrack into mm-hmm. it, but I'm pretty sure it was an internal coup. <laughs> um, right. I'm pretty like I'm pretty sure this was just a raison de guerre for the stockholders essentially booting him out right. and installing Chief Operating Officer Claire Babarowski, who is well known in who's well known in the business world for essentially being like she is an expert at being the fall girl. Right. Right. It's like so if you see a company that's failing. Mm-hmm. And it's got assets that you want. Yeah, you pull strings to get um, to get Claire Babrowski in power, right? So she briefly took power as CEO and president, a uh, 
She was a 31-year veteran of the McDonald's Corporation, where she had been vice president and chief restaurant operations officer. Mm. Babarowski had joined Radio Shack several months prior and left the company uh, <laughs> left the company in 2006 and later became CEO and executive vice president of Toys R Us, where she did this, the exact same thing. Right. Essentially, like, showed up, like, showed up, declared bankruptcy so that they didn't have to pay anyone's pensions, mm-hmm. reorganized some assets, and then just restarted. Right. Like, that's what she does. She basically <laughs> did that for several large components of the McDonald's Corporation right. earlier. Interesting. So... We've got a familiar face. A Radio Shack's, Radio Shack's board of directors appointed Julian C. Day as chairman and chief executive officer on July 7, 2006. DeLay had financial experience and had played a key role in revitalizing such companies as Safeway, Kmart, and Sears. Oh, wow. But lacked any practical frontline sales experience and needed to run a retail co- But lacked um, any practical frontline experience needed to run a retail company. So he was basically a CFO. Right. right, he was basically in charge of like financial, like financial reorganization. Yeah. He was a debt guy, mm. right? Yeah. Um, but they put him in as CEO, which is like that—that's like front end business stuff. Yeah. And he had no idea what he was doing. Right. Uh, Consumerist magazine named him as uh, one of the ten crappiest CEOs of two thousand and nine <laughs> oh, no. among consumer facing companies, according to their own employees. <laughs> uh, he resigned May eleventh of two thousand and eleven. Oh. <laughs> Radio Shack Chief Financial Officer, James Jim Gooch. (laughs) Jim Gooch? His name was literally just James Gooch. (laughs) Succeeded Day as CEO in 2011, but agreed to step down 16 months later following a 73% plunge in the price of stock. After the earlier 61% plunge. So it's like... I'll agree to step down. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree to step down. It's it's even in quotes in like in the quote here. <laughs> <Right>. <sighs> On February eleventh, two thousand and thirteen, Radio Shack Corporation hired Joseph C. Mag uh, Magnaka from Walgreens because he had experience in retail. A slightly smarter choice, but at this point, it's literally just like vultures. Yeah, like every CEO they put in is basically just like, all right, I'll collect a salary and then bail out as soon as my two years are up. Yeah, it seems to be a trend of like failing companies just like rotating the CEOs in and out, and it they is, take a crap ton of money and they leave and they make the company worse. And yeah, <laughs> the, uh, in my notes here, this entire section was uh, headed the vultures. <laughs> two thousand and six corporate layoffs and a new strategy and the legacy of Mister Day. So this is basically what Julian C. Day implemented during his time. Mm-hmm. In spring of 2006, Radio Shack announced a strategy to increase average unit volume, lower overhead costs, and grow a profitable square f- and grow profitable square footage, like an expansion plan. Mm-hmm. In the early mid to six 2000, in early to mid 2006, Radio Shack closed nearly 500 locations. Jeez. So, uh, great job expanding there, guys. Yeah, it's block blockbuster level. Uh destruction of locations. It was determined that some stores were too close to each other, causing them to compete with one another for the same customers. (laughs) Most of the stores closed in 2006 and brought in less than than $350,000 in revenue every year. Wow. Which is pathetic. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Just by contrast, a single rainforest cafe brought in over $8 million. million. (laughs) Despite these actions, stock prices plummeted. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Wow. 
within what was otherwise a booming market. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, it's the market. The market's doing poor. I was like, the market's fine, dude. Oh, throughout, throughout this, like, every executive was doing nothing. They were doing... Bl- they were blaming everyone but themselves. Right. <laughs> it, it, and that's one thing you see throughout all of this. They just refuse to let go. It's yeah. always someone else. They're always correct, and they just need to keep going. Yeah, like this was like 2006, right? Yeah, this is 2006. Right before like the bubble burst. So like the, the market was booming, actually. Right, right. Despite these actions, stock prices plummeted within what was, a, what was otherwise a booming market. On August 10th of 2006, Radio Shack announced plans to eliminate a fifth of its company headquarters <laughs> workforce to reduce overhead expense. Which, like, compared, compared to shit like, per, like the sheer amount of inventory uh-huh. that they're purchasing and the licensing deals and business deals that they're yeah. making, like, personnel at your corporate headquarters is nothing. Yeah. That's like that's pennies compared to the actual cost of doing business. Exactly. Improve. Okay, so blah, blah, blah. on Tuesday, on Tuesday, August 29th, the affected workers received an email that was literally like just this: "The workforce reduction notification is currently in progress. Unfortunately, your position is one that has been eliminated." <laughs> that's it. That's all you got. Jeez. Oh, even for Radio Shack, come on, guys. Four, One more sentence. 403 workers were given 30 minutes to collect their personal <laughs> oh, effects. Geez. We're given 30 minutes to collect their personal effects, say their goodbyes to their co-workers, and then attend a short meeting with their senior supervisors. Instead of issuing severance payments immediately, the company withheld them to ensure the company... to ensure that company-issued Blackberries, laptops, and cell phones were returned. So it's like they wouldn't give you your severance package unless you returned the company BlackBerry. I just imagine like a, a bomb being placed in their office with like a timer. And it's like get out before you get killed. It's like, Seriously. That's crazy. That's got to be against the law. To, like, it's extreme. Like a lot of the shit that I've mentioned here is extremely against yeah, the law. Like, that's literally extermination. Like there's calling in someone to like spread like poison gas in their offices oh no, or remember something. That, okay, that, that like stock buyback thing that they did earlier? Yeah. That's extremely illegal. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> because what they did, they... They, like, blatantly did it to inflate their stock price. Like, it was extremely illegal. Yeah. No, all of this shit, like, flies in the face of labor regulations. Uh, This move drew immediate and widespread public criticism for its lack of sensitivity. And keep in mind, through through all of this, Radio Shack was still a staple of American consumer markets. The second decline came around 2008 with the market collapse. And because consumers didn't have the money to purchase expensive cell phones, which was responsible for 50% of their profits. Yeah. 2009, consumer relations problems. Radio Shack and the Better Business Bureau of Fort Worth, Texas, met on April 23rd of 2009 to discuss unanswered and unresolved complaints. The company implemented a plan of action to address existing and future customer service issues. Stores were directed to post a sign within the district manager's name, the question, how are we doing? And a direct toll-free number to the individual district office for their area. RadioShackHelp.com was created as another portal for customers to resolve their issues through the internet. As of 2012, the Better Business Bureau had upgraded RadioShack from an F to an A rating. This was changed to no rating after the 2015 <laughs> bankruptcy filing. Oh no. <laughs> and so, you gotta remember, through all of this, 
their Better Business Bureau customer service rating was F. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like they had to literally have a meeting with the with the Better Business Bureau to like put in things like a toll-free number, like a a customer support website, like stuff that should just be part of a business plan. Yeah. <laughs> they had to literally be, be forced by the by the BBB to put these things. Like, you'd think they would just think to put those there, but it's like, no, right. it never occurred to them. Okay, so here we, here we go with the raw numbers. From 2000 to 2011, Radio Shack spent 2.6 billion dollars <laughs> repurchasing its own stock in an attempt to prop up the share price, which fell from 24 from $24 to, get this, $2.53. Oh, no. They spent $2.6 billion to try and inflate their stock price, and it didn't work. Just basically, like, burning $2 billion. Like, they, it literally, I, okay, it literally would have been more cost-effective for them to convert that $2.6 billion into $1 bills, and then power their stores by shoveling one dollar yeah, bills into right. into furnaces yeah like exactly that literally would have been more cost effective yeah <laughs> like they didn't just burn money it was literally less efficient and less profitable than burning yeah, money right burning money would have been a better option the buyback and the stock dividend were suspended in 2012 to conserve cat to conserve cash and reduce debt as the company continued to hemorrhage money Company stock had declined 81% tense since 2010 and was trading well below book value. That's another thing. Even with these like blatant stock buyback schemes, yeah. like they're they were still lying about their yeah. stock price. <laughs> right. The stock the stock reached an all-time low on April 14th of 2012. In September of 2012, Radio Shack's head office laid off 130 more workers after a two a 21 million dollar quarterly loss. Layoffs continued in August of 2013. Headquarters employment dropped from more than 2,000 below the, before to slightly fewer than 1,000. At the end of 2013, uh, the chain owned uh, uh, 4,297 U.S. stores. Faced with the prospect of bankruptcy after a quarter with income in the negative millions, the company the company sought out a $250 million cash infusion in uh, 2013 from Salus Capital Partners and Cerberus Capital Management. This debt carried onerous conditions, preventing Radio Shack from gaining control over costs by limiting store closures to 200 a year and restricting the company's refinancing efforts. With too many underperforming stores open, the chain continued to spiral towards <laughs> bankruptcy. In all likelihood, like, so basically, they were in the red, and yeah. were and had been for a couple quarters. And so, instead of just declaring Chapter Eleven like a normal company, mm -hmm. they they went to, they went to a bank and got an enormous. They got a, a quarter billion dollar business loan from yeah. them. All right. Which, and like, okay, so think about, think about the terms of this loan, mm -hmm. right? You can't close and you can't close more than 200 stores per year. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and the bank essentially gets controls, gets control over uh, the pricing of your products. Right. This is like, there's nothing that, 
confirms it, but in all likelihood, this was this was a financial hamstringing, yeah. right? They did not. Salus Capital did not want Radio Shack to pay back on its debts. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. It was what, like what I said earlier about the rest of the financial world, essentially like see, looking at Radio Shack yeah. and licking their lips. This was Sal. This was Salus Capital taking the first bite. Essentially, yeah. it, this was them butchering, like, essentially butchering uh, Radio Shack for sale. It seems like similar to like what happened with Blockbuster and Dish Network. It's yeah. like Blockbuster was losing like nine hundred million dollars a year, and like then they got bought. It's like what like obviously they're not like hoping to turn Blockbuster around. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some sort of like catch in there that it's like for their assets or for their debt or whatever. Basically, what they're doing is they're they're just sort of circling until they've. They're just circling until Radio Shack declares Chapter Eleven, yeah, which is liquidation, and then they can swoop in and nab up, nab up all of the assets that they want, right? Um, which a lot of companies were trying to do, yeah. right? But the thing is, is that Radio Shack just kept hanging on. Yeah. They would not give up. Right. They just they refused. Like they should have de- they should have declared Chapter Eleven back in like two thousand and four, right. and it's twenty fifth. It's yeah. it's twenty fourteen now. They just won't die. They've just kept digging. On June 10th of 2014, Radio Shack announced that it had enough cash to last 12 months, which was a lie. <laughs> they were they were negative. 12 months, otherwise known as one year. Right. But it's like they were lying. They yeah. were $250 million in debt. <laughs> they had no cash. Yeah. Uh, but that lasting a year depended on sales growing. Wasn't gonna happen. Uh, sales had fallen for nine straight quarters. <laughs> yeah. This and, time we're gonna do well. And by year's end, the company realized a loss in each of its ten latest quarters. <laughs> On June twentieth of twenty fourteen, Radio Shack stock fell below one dollar, oh, no. triggering a July twenty fifth warning from the New York Stock Exchange that it could be delisted for failure to maintain a stock price above one dollar. <laughs> <laughs> just do the, just a dollar. <laughs> like honestly. Like, I could run a company that had a stock price of higher than $1. Yeah. I could do that. <laughs> and a dollar was probably overvaluing it highly. Easily. Honestly. Easily. Uh, on July 28th to 2014, Merger Markets uh, Debtwire reported that Radio Shack was discussing Chapter 11 bankruptcy mm-hmm. as a, prote- a Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection as an option. Right. On September 11th of 2014, Radio Shack admitted that it might have to file for bankruptcy. <laughs> maybe. Okay, guys. Maybe. maybe we'll have to do this. Probably not, but maybe. <laughs> and would be unable to finance its operations beyond the very near term, unless the company was sold, restructured, or received a major cash infusion. <laughs> On September 15th of 2014, Radio Shack replaced its CFO with a bankruptcy specialist. <laughs> On October third, radio <laughs> subtle. <laughs> On October third, Radio Shack announced an out-of-court restructuring, a four-to-one dilution of shares, oh, which, like, okay, so during the two thousand and eight financial collapse, like Bear Stearns was like, oh, the FCC is shutting us down. It's like they're like worst-case scenario, they'll give us a three-to-one, they'll give us a three-to-one buyback. Yeah, and then they and. Like worst case scenario, they'd give us a three to one, 
and then yeah, the, they and that's gave, Bear Stearns, right. like an infamous company, right? Well, and Bear and what Bear Stearns got was a four to one ratio, right? And that that made people that like that caused suicides, right? Like yeah. people were people were furious, like yeah. that was unheard of. Mm-hmm. And Radio Shack got a four to one, <laughs> <laughs> and a rights issue priced at forty cents a share. Jeez. <laughs> Radio Shack's stock was halted on the New York Stock Exchange for the entire day, despite the debt restructuring proposal. In December, Salas and Cerberus uh, informed Radio Shack that it was in default of the $250 million that they had provided. <laughs> Which, surprise, like, surprise. I love I love the name uh, Salas and Cerberus, uh, like, Salas and Cerberus Financial Solutions. Because, yeah. like, that sounds like an evil debt corporation. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a monster with, like, three snake heads. Right, right. But, like, like if you needed, if you need a name for an evil bank, yeah. <laughs> like, Salas and Cerberus, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. At the end of October of 2014, uh, only a month later, quarterly figures indicated that Radio Shack was losing $1.1 million per day. Jeez. A November... Uh, keep in mind, a single rainforest cafe made $8 million a year, yeah. and Radio right. Shack is losing $1.1 million a day. A November 2014 attempt to keep the stores open from 8 a.m. to midnight on Thanksgiving Day drew sharp backlash from employees <laughs> and a f- and many resignations. Comparable store sales for three days, Saturday to Sunday, were 1% lower than the prior year. When the stores were open for two of the days, the company's problems maintaining inventories of big-ticket t- big items such as Apple's iPhone 6 further cut into sales. Right. So basically that meant... Um, so they were they tried to stay open for two straight days during Black Friday and uh, didn't have any iPhones. <laughs> like all the all the big expensive items that were all that were responsible for the majority of their profits, mm-hmm. they uh, didn't have any in stock. <laughs> Let's stay open, guys. Right. We'll so sell these like three prong adapters or whatever. So so they they hired they hired triple em, like triple temp employees for the rush weekend. Yeah. Um. Stayed open for 36 hours straight, and then people would flood the stores and then be like, "Where are all the iPhones?" Yeah. And then they would leave without buying anything. But we're open for two days. L- literally, <laughs> that's all, that was all they did. So like, they don't get the concept of like being open for two days would mean that you have items that people want to buy. Right. It's like they. It's like just because the to- store is open doesn't yeah. mean that people like. Yeah. Especially like. They just they just did not have enough inventory. Like, they undershot inventory for the items that were responsible for their profits. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is... Running a business is not a complicated... It's, like, it is not... Running a business is a simple endeavor, yeah. right? In, like, maximize profits, minimize costs. Yeah. That, very simple. Right. So it is very clear that, like... These are the products responsible for your profits. You need to have. You need to maximize these. You right. need to have as many of these as possible. Th- no, they didn't. They decided not to. Like, yeah. Uh, it's like rule one being broken. By December of 2014, Radio Shack was being sued by former employees for having encouraged them to invest 401k retirement savings into company stock. Oh no. And this is this is in 2014 when the stock price was 60 cents. Yeah. Uh, 
Like, well, and this is also in 2014 when their stocks went off the stock exchange for a month <laughs> because they had declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Yeah, not a great 401k option, <sighs> I have to say. Um, this is also extremely illegal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so this is also extremely illegal. Um, and they got taken down, they got taken down by the Federal Trade Commission, uh, which caused... Uh, devastating losses in the retirement plans as the stock dropped from uh, $13 to $0.38. (laughs) Yeah, surprise, surprise. uh, They they tried to, they, like, yeah. (laughs) They were, so they were being sued for, they were being sued for this, um, and they got taken down by the Federal Trade Commission for it, mm-hmm. um, but they, they won the lawsuit against their employees and didn't have to pay their retirement plans, and then had the gall to blame their employees for the losses. <laughs> you shouldn't have uh, invested in our stock then. Right. Like, you told us to! <laughs> you literally forced us to! Bad choice on, on your guys' part. Not so, very smart. Here's a fun aside. Okay. In late 2014, Radio Shack hired famous and famously expensive singer-songwriter Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> to star in a commercial. He appeared as a Willy Wonka-esque salesman <laughs> singing an original composition commissioned for the ad <laughs> oh, about heliquad drones and batteries. As if the ad wasn't expensive enough, it aired during the Super Bowl. <laughs> I was going to say that sounds like a Super Bowl ad. It was. Yeah. And it was, it was like, weird and desperate. Like, right. it was clear, like, wait, Radio Shack paid for this? Yeah. It's like, this is desperate. Right. Weird Al probably had a ton of fun doing it, though, oh, and I, got paid a shit ton of money. He, I, I don't know how much he charges, but he's famous for being one of the most expensive people in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> So, 2017, bankruptcy. (laughs) It was speculated on March 2nd of 2017 that General Wireless was preparing to take Radio Shack through its second bankruptcy in two years. This was evidenced when dozens of of corporate employees were laid off and 200 stores were planned on being shuttered. Further evidence... Further evidence when all Radio Shack websites began displaying all sales final banners in storefronts and purchasing locations. Despite declaring Chapter 11 bankruptcy, typically reserved for reorganization of debt instead of Chapter 7, which is liquidation, Mm -hmm. which is what they should have done this entire time, um, the company engaged in liquidation of all inventory supplies and store fixtures as well as auctioning off old memorabilia <laughs> the radio shack museum yeah like hats <laughs> and employee employee uniforms that say radio shack on them yeah a thousand dollars please uh on may 26 radio shack announced its plans to close all but 70 corporate stores and shift its business primarily to online which like the business world's reaction to that was like Sure you are, buddy. Yeah. Sure you are. Yeah. We're going to do this thing and it's going to be cool. And we're going to shift all of our remaining business to online storefronts. And they're like, yeah, okay, buddy. I'm You're sure. You're going to like us again. We're going to be cool. We're going to be awesome. and we're, I'm going to fly to the moon. My dad's an astronaut. He's going to win the Super Bowl and he's going to love me. The shack is back. The shack is back, baby. One particular store. <laughs> oh, this is fucking great. Um, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, this is great. One particular store closing in April of 2017 garnered widespread media attention (laughs) when a Facebook account calling itself Radio Shack Reynoldsburg, Ohio, began lashing out at customers (laughs) with with messages such as, We are closed. 
Fuck all of you. <laughs> Always hated all of you prick customers anyway. <laughs> Radio Shack addressed these posts on their official Facebook page, denying any involvement. Clearly, Radio Shack was handling this well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, the, 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 the grammar of the Facebook post is great. It's, we are closed, period. Fuck all of you, period. <laughs> Always hated all of you prick customers anyway, period. But honestly, them posting on their Facebook account, fuck you, we've always hated all of you, would not be the worst business decision they've ever made. <laughs> it honestly wouldn't. That's the thing. <laughs> on June 29th of 2017, Radio Shack's creditors sued Sprint, claiming that it sabotaged its co-branded locations with newly built Sprint retail stores, which were constructed near well-performing Radio Shack locations, as determined by, confiden by confidential sales information. <laughs> <laughs> the suit argued that Sprint's actions destroyed nearly 6,000 Radio Shack jobs. So, think about this, right? They tried to sue Sprint for sabotaging our businesses by starting Sprint retail locations near us, like... Sprint near Sprint retail locations near Radio Shack locations, and then out competing Radio Shack, which is not illegal. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, they say like, well, how do you know that the Radio Shack locations are performing well? It's like, trust us, they are. We have statistics that we're not going to show you. <laughs> so, none of this is illegal. Yeah. At all. Um, so what exactly they were suing <laughs> Sprint for is kind of a mystery. Yeah. But the the truly telling thing here is if you have a major comp business competitor, you should start business you should start business near them so that you can take customers away from them. Yeah. Radio Shack was suing Sprint for effectively running a business. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is, you know, they're suing them for doing better than right. they were. How dare you run a business better than us? Right. <laughs> they're just jealous. <laughs> right, it's like, what? 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 Yeah. General Wireless announced plans on June 12, 2017 to auction off the Radio Shack name and IP with uh, bidding be to begin on July 18th. Bidding concluded on July 9th, less than a week later, um, or a little more than a week later. Ugh, excuse me. Kensington Capital Holdings obtained Radio Shack brand and other intellectual properties for $15 million, which is honestly probably overpricing it. Yeah. In October of 2017, General Wireless officially exited bankruptcy and was allowed to retain the company's warehouse, e-commerce site, dealer, network operations, and up to 28 stores. Nice. That's a good start, Radio Shack. Yeah. I know you guys are just getting started. <sighs> so, the autopsy. <laughs> what killed Radio Shack? So, every time a company like this dies, pop economists jump up to blame things like government regulations, overseas competitions, international trade deals, labor organizations. And while those things might have helped, they are usually little more than background pressure. Mm -hmm. Nine times out of ten, what kills businesses like these is high-level managers that don't know how to drive the machine that they're in. Yeah. So, like, in my research, I collected a lot of, like, like, I collected a lot of, like, points that a lot of economists agreed on. Mm -hmm. So, 
employees often knew very little about the products they were selling. Almost nobody knew the difference between a diode or a resistor. Yeah. Radio, Shack's tr Radio Shack's training regimen was extremely bare bones. They right. basically couldn't afford to constantly train people. Like, mm -hmm. it was basically just, here, shadow this person who already works here. Yeah, and who so, probably doesn't know that much them, like, right, himself. Because they had because they were caught in the last purge. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so employees knew basically nothing about the products they were selling. And if you don't know what you're selling, how are you going to sell it? Yeah, especially to people who don't know what they want to buy. Right. Or <laughs> you're supposed to be the expert. Right. Cheap computers from competitors meant that uh, repair was a less valuable option. Mm. Like, why would you why would you spend the time to like learn how to repair a computer if you can get a new one from Dell.com for four hundred dollars? Yeah. Um, store brands were often literally the exact same guts as a competitor at twice the cost. Yeah. Um, this is great. A strange inventory from <laughs> so you've got the phones. Then I don't know if you'd ever been into a Radio Shack in like the last couple years of their operation. I'm sure I did. Yeah. Um, but strange inventory choices <laughs> from toys of Brum, a talking Model T automobile and star of an English children's show that only ever aired on Discovery Kids. <laughs> like, what? Why are you selling that in a Radio Shack? Um, to QCAT, one of Time Magazine's. Uh, 50 worst inventions of all time. <laughs> a barcode scanner that allowed computers to visit websites, which is something that computers can already do. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the whole purpose of computers. The, the, the thing with this QCAT was it was like a... It looked sort of like a computer mouse, and it was like a barcode scanner. Yeah. And it was the idea that, like... So it's like you have a magazine or a catalog, right? And if you see something want, you want, you can just sort of boop, yeah. like... And it brings up the, the sale page on your computer, Yeah. right? Which is, like, the thing cost fifty bucks. Yeah. It required, it required like product, like product managers to, like, ha like put the actual barcodes in their products. Right. Which none of them did. Yeah. So they had to like redo every single one of their products. Right. And you can just you can just type it in. Like, yeah. You can just type it in Google. <laughs> right. Probably take take less time. Ugh. Stores were too close together, uh, which they tried to remedy. Okay, so stores were too close together, uh, so they had to compete for customers. Yeah. Which, like, that's something that happens with a lot of successful brick-and-mortar things like this. It happened to Blockbuster a lot. Yeah. But they tried to remedy it by selling the real estate to their competitors. <laughs> no! <laughs> no! Wrong! Open up a Jamba Juice or something. Wrong! Bad! <laughs> Open up a shoe-shining store or something. At uh. least you won't be cannibalizing yourselves. <laughs> Uh, product concentration, the injection of success that they got from the cell phone boom made them double down on cell phone retail, which made them reliant on what was essentially a fad. Yeah. Um, they had no consistency in management. From, okay, from between 2005 to 2014, Radio Shack changed CEOs seven times. Yeah. Like, that's, that's impossible. You yeah. can't have a successful business with that. Right. Uh, large financial missteps. In October of 2013, Radio Shack made negative earnings, but instead of declaring bankruptcy, they decided to withdraw $250 million um, from a bank that wanted to devour them. Uh, here's a quote that stood out to me. <clears throat> Radio Shack's demise is like retracing the steps of... is like retracing the steps and doings of a drunk person. Okay, here's where they keyed the cop car. Wait, why did he do that? I don't know. But his pants are over here. So this is before he stripped naked and tried to rob the library. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is by uh, 
this is by uh, from an article in the the S and B Nation. Uh, they completely failed to catch the maker movement, which with its it had a unique market position and nigh perfect brick and mortar presence. Radio Shack could have single handedly revolutionized the modern electronics landscape. Mm. Like the maker movement was like all about build like don't buy electronics, build them at home, yeah. like learn to repair things, which is like would have been ideal for Radio Shack's market space. Right. But they um but instead they wanted to sell remote control cars. Right. Um talking remote control cars. <laughs> so this is a quote from Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at New York's University of uh, New York University Stern Business School. I wouldn't even call this a failure. I'd call it assisted suicide. <laughs> it's amazing it's even taken this long for the company to go out of business. And the last thing was the rampant rampant labor violations. Yeah. So, this is from that article I was talking yeah. about earlier. Um, I've been for this. The, the, the eulogy of Radio Shack. Yeah. So this is, this is the author of the article talking about um, uh, so this is this is his experience working at a Radio Shack. Yeah. <clears throat> 4.30am. We show up an hour and a half before the store opens as demanded by the district office. We stand around and do nothing. <laughs> 6 a.m. We all line up in expectation of hordes of customers. Six on one side of the store. Six on the other side. Pallbearers of an invisible casket. The manager opens the doors. No one is waiting on the other end. <laughs> oh, man. 7 a.m. Nobody has walked into the store. Nobody has even been seen walking past the store. This infuriates the manager, who at this juncture elects to fire one employee. Right there on the spot. Because her sweater is a shade of red that is inconsistent with the dress code. 8 a.m. Someone almost walks in. She kind of turns towards the store, sees 11 of us just standing and staring at her. She turns to make a 180. I don't blame you, ma'am. 9 a.m. First customer. Someone just walked in and bought a cordless phone battery. One of us would have made approximately 23 cents off the sale. 18 after taxes. Except you don't start making sales commissions until you surpass a monthly sales figure that is usually unreachable and arbitrarily set. I worked at Radio Shack for 43 months and never once hit this mark. Never once even got close. 12pm. We've sold maybe $90 worth of stuff. Two more employees walk out and don't come back. 2pm. A couple comes in to return a pair of cell phones I sold them a couple weeks back. I received about $40 for the sale on my last paycheck, and now they will take $40 out of my paycheck. Voiding a cell phone contract is a process that takes an hour or so of waiting on the phone and talking to three or four different gatekeepers. This time, it's even longer, because someone errantly slapped them with a $200 cancellation fee. My manager gets wind of this and starts screaming at me, John, what the fuck did you do? What the fuck did you do? She then tries to initiate a shouting match with my customers, who don't bite. <laughs> 3 p.m. Two more employees quit. One, because the manager has refused to give her a lunch break over a 10.5-hour shift, which is extremely illegal. Yeah. 9 p.m. Mercifully, and with sales numbers that are beyond abysmal, the district office tells us to close the store and not to remain open until midnight, as planned. Someone else came in to return a phone. So my sales are now about $60 in the hole. I make $5.45 an hour and have worked a 16.5 hour shift. So that's about $90. 
minus the $60 I've lost. That's $30. <laughs> so today, I have made about $1.80 per hour for a shift that is nearly 17 hours long. Before taxes. <laughs> 9.45pm. <laughs> I am still at the store counting the money and helping clean up and such, but not getting paid for it. This is Radio Shack's thing. If you're working while the store is closed, they might decide to pay you, and they might not. I worked countless hours they never paid me for. This is one. We finally close up. On the way to the parking lot, I ask my manager whether I can take Christmas Eve off. This would allow me barely enough time to make the seven-hour drive back home to Kentucky to see my family, and then head back. She doesn't say no. She yells no, and tells me I'm not special. Thus ends the quote. That's this, not real. This is the legacy of Radio Shack. Bitter employees and desperate executives who could have gone toe-to-toe with the likes of Amazon and Apple had they played their cards right. But they gutted their company's potential in the name of short-term profit. Oh, man. That's, like, physically painful to listen to. That That was maybe like one one hundredth of the article i rec right. i recommend everyone read this article yeah. it is it's amazing yeah. like just the like the manager is a fascinating character like right oh my god it's he talks about like he he talks about like getting a new manager and then watching the experience of trying to manage a radio shack like corrupt their soul <laughs> like the managers don't start out like that they just every single one of them becomes this insane manic rage monster right. by the time they're done it's it's literally like like they're being corrupted by an ancient evil or something right. it is it's 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 dreamlike it's yeah. insane you absolutely have to read this article wow man that's scary right <laughs> 17 hour days yeah like no wonder customers want to come in it's like extremely intimidating that's a terrifying atmosphere 12 people just like 12 oppressed people just like standing there waiting for you right doing doing nothing yeah (laughs) just staring at you right yeah it seems like a trap like it's a weird like cult that's just like oh yeah come buy our radio so okay I I I didn't include it in that quote, but okay, so that entire thing, that was Black Friday. Oh my god. That was Black Friday. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> oh my god, yeah. No, that was Black Friday, and, um, shit, what was it? Um, yeah, just that, that, that like, intimidating atmosphere. Yeah. God, I lost what I was going to say. I'm sorry. Yeah, but that, that's just like... <sighs> that could be a novel right there. Easy. Like, that's like a fictional world. Easily. Easily. <laughs> like, utterly terrifying. Yeah. Like, Jeez. I... Imagine... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was what I was going to say. So, it's like... This was during Black Friday, and this is... The location that they're in is in... It's, like, cocooned in a dying mall. <laughs> yeah. So, no one is in there already. Yeah. Like... Like literally three customers the entire day. Probably like, if anyone comes in, it's like by mistake or like they're trying to find the restroom or something. Right. Oh, easily. But just imagine like wandering through a dead mall, and then you see a Radio Shack with no one in it, but there's six employees 
standing there motionless and staring at you. <laughs> like, I would think that I would walk in and they would, like, jump me and start biting me. Yeah, like sucking your blood or something. <laughs> Food! Oh, that is terrifying. What a way to end that story. Right? <laughs> I was... Jeez. It's like the exact opposite of the Rainforest Cafe. Right, right. Like the Rainforest Cafe, people are, like, actually sad that it, like... Like, the Rainforest Cafe, like, actually gave jobs to, like, animal handlers that would not find jobs otherwise. And, and it was a place created out of, like... It was a place created out of, like, a genuine joy yeah, and love. Yeah, like, a love for, like, animals and, like, childhood whimsy. Right, and, but, like, and not just... But but not just this, like, childlike whimsy for animals. It was, like, that plus a genuine desire... Like, a genuine joy... Of running a good business. Yeah. Like that was. Like a noble, well intentioned business. Right. It's like, which is like, that's like the American ideal. Yeah. Right. It's just this, like, loving something and loving monetizing it. Like, loving, totally. truly enjoying selling a product. Exactly. Like, is this, like, that's this beautiful American city on a hill capitalist ideal. Totally. And Radio Shack is just this, like, it's this like dystopian yeah. company store Henry Ford nightmare. <laughs> yeah, like a parody of the American, the American dream. God, jeez. Well, that was amazing. Yes. Like, your research on that was so great. And I put that together. I'm, there's there is so much in this that I like. I I just flat out did not have time to research. Totally. But there was so there was so much shit. In researching this, yeah. that was like I had to I had to stop myself from going down the rabbit hole because it was like this could be an episode on its own. Yeah, totally. Well, I remember you messaged me like earlier. You're like, I have struck gold here. Like you weren't even like you're just like you know that Radio Shack like declined in a spectacular way, but you had no idea. I, I could I, easily do an entire second episode yeah, on this. Totally. <laughs> we could just change the podcast to like horror stories from Radio Shack. We we absolutely like that's not even an. Example. Exaggeration. <laughs> there is, because like, that's like when I say that when I said that this was like an enormous public train wreck. Yeah. Like that was part of it. Like Sears had this slow decline, and it was, but it was mainly it was mainly done by business people. Like yeah. Every single element of Radio Shack's decline was dramatic and extremely well documented. There is yeah. so much information about right. it. It's so public. That's what's something so beautiful about, like, giant companies that, like, go belly up. It's, like, everything is public by law. Right. Like, if you're publicly traded, you have to publish everything, which just is, like, provides this narrative for, like, like a, a business, like, just making all these terrible decisions and slowly just dying and things just collapsing. It's so beautiful but, to study. And it was, but with Radio Shack, it was, like, every... It wasn't just a decline. It was, yeah. like, every bad decision had, like, right. a flair to yeah. it. <laughs> right. It's, like, every bad decision was a special bad decision. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, they, they, they fucked up in their own personal, unique way. Yeah. And it was... It was... <laughs> it, they did it with panache. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like... Because it's one thing to fail... It's one thing to fuck up in, like, a very personal but quiet way. Yeah. Like, Radio Shack... It was, like, not only was every mistake bad, but every mistake was, like... Every mistake, like, was so... Was bad in a way that garnered media attention. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, like, it's not just that, but it's also, like, they were... It's always in points where they were perfectly poised... Yes! To, like, dominate yes! the market. That, and it was, like... Oh, God. It's literally, like... 
imagine to use a baseball metaphor like it's the bottom of the ninth inning you're two runs behind the bases are loaded and you swing and you like drop the bat along the way right. like you forget how to swing a baseball bat it's, and you like hit the catcher in the face or something it's in it would it would literally be like exactly exactly Oh my god! It's just like you. There's no way you could possibly mess this up, unless it's like a, a very specific wrong decision. And it, they always went to that. It's it's like wrong it's decision. like if you're playing poker and you were dealt a royal flush. Yeah. And so and then you decided to call. Yeah. It's like you're just like not not playing this hand. It's like, wait, no. It's like you had. It's like, like literally, which. And that's the thing I love about this show is all of the people that are in this like perfect circumstance for success. Yeah. This like utterly perfect circumstance for success and they fuck it up because yeah. they're a dumbass. Right. Like it's like which would be extremely tragic if it was on a personal level. Yeah. But because it's these like dickhead businessmen and yeah. these soulless corporations, you it's you get to laugh yeah. at the the delicious hubris right. of it all. Yeah, it's becoming a recurring trend. Oh, man. All right, well, I think that about wraps it up. Yeah, episode four in the bag. We've made it past the dreaded episode four curse, and it's going to be smooth sailing from now on. All right, we will be back on the next episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you.